Welcome one and all, I'm Chris Stone, the Virtual Agile Coach, and this is the Virtually Agile Podcast, the pod that shares conversations with Agile thought leaders, as well as amplifying newer voices. You'll hear about agility, virtual working, and everything in between. In today's episode, we talk about visual thinking, the differences between an Agile delivery manager, Agile coach, and Scrum master, as well as the parallels between Agile ways of working and sporting failures. If you find value in listening, don't forget to follow or subscribe on your platform of choice, it's really the best way to hear about the latest episodes as they land. Enjoy the show, folks. Fellow Agilists, welcome to another episode in Season 4 of the Virtually Agile podcast. And as you all know, on the podcast, we aspire for neurodiversity and the amplification of voices that are seldom heard, as well as featuring established thought leaders. Today's guest is a deeply talented and created, creative sorry, visual Agile coach. He's a head of Agile delivery management with a number of beautifully illustrated templates on the Miroverse. And I can see he's repping his, his newly gained Miro swag. I am pleased to welcome Stephen Sampson-Jones to the show. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure, mate. Very kind words indeed. <laughs> it's great to have you here. So for any listeners who aren't familiar with your work, Stephen, please just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey with agility. Perfect. Yeah. So for anyone that isn't familiar with some of the work I publish on Neuroverse or on LinkedIn, so I'm an enthusiastic uh, doodler. So I try to use visual storytelling and immersive uh, visual facilitation techniques just to make work a bit fun and try and use that in my coaching, teaching and mentoring. Uh, In terms of how I got into uh, agile delivery, it's a bit of an interesting one. So I I, I left college uh, and went to work in the House Department, House of Commons, safest job in the country, right? So I was told. <laughs> and then the expenses scandal kicked off uh, six months later. I had nothing to do with it, my ad. But as I was about 20, 30 years younger than all my peers, uh, MOJ and the regulatory body uh, called IPSA, Parliamentary Standards Authority, got set up in March 2009. And by the 6th of April, during the next, during the general election cycle, I had to help administer and produce a product for the the new digital online expenses system. And what better way in in trying to meet those really tough deadlines, you know, policy and legislation in in the state of flux. And and yeah, I just adopted the agile mindset from that point. It was was the point in government where we shifted from direct.gov to gov.uk. And yeah, I just haven't looked back since over the last 12 years. And, And that's kind of taken me through a number of different products in parliament worked on some other critical services like the Warm Home Discount, like iterating that at Ofgem, which is quite prevalent in today's news. I've uh, worked in the Cabinet Office and GDS on, on government standards and Brexit, which again, is starting to get quite contra- controversial in my portfolio at this point. Uh, does work at DFT on, uh, on drone registration and electric charge points and, and port freight shipping movement. And where I'm currently at at the minute is Universal Credit, which is probably the thing I'm most proud of, especially in the pandemic, where we've scaled this service to six, seven million claimants, super vulnerable people, you know, supporting Kickstart, which we got got from sort of inception to delivery in around six, seven weeks. So that's my whistle-stop tour of uh, mm. agility in government over the last uh, decade. Excellent. Thanks for sharing your journey. And just for any listeners uh, from around the world who aren't familiar with some of these these terms that you're referencing within regards to the UK, Universal Credit provides a service to tell us more about that. Yeah, so, so Universal Credit is our sort of state welfare system. So it provides the most vulnerable people in society that, that might have disabilities or sort of accessibility needs that they can't work. And it just gives them access to, to money and, and housing costs and you know, they have job coaches, uh, work coaches and job centres to support the people back into work and at the most vulnerable point in society, at the most vulnerable point in their, in, in their lives, we're there to, to lend a hand and do the best that we can to, to support these people. Excellent. So your customers are, it's, I guess it sounds like a very rewarding area to be working in, some, some vulnerable customers that you can deeply support and provide help to. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like the user research is like astonishing, like, you know, hearing people's stories where, you know, the, the work that we provide and the service and products that we iterate, you know, this is what puts, you know, food on the table. It allows children to go with like clothes on their back, you know, it gets people into work that might have already given up. Uh, you know, we've worked on on tools that have helped prevent suicide and, and flag that for, for people to get, you know, support straight away so there's there's people that administer the service that 
that might not see these messages for weeks due to the demand and, and being able to do work that's that impactful and you kind of go home thinking, do you know what, I've made a big difference today. So it's highly, highly rewarding. Wonderful. Now, for anyone who isn't aware, the theme of season four of this podcast is around failure. And I firmly believe we need to destigmatize failure and rebrand it as a learning opportunity. We in the agile world often use the phrase fail first, but I've learned that actually failure is still so heavily stigmatized. People don't like to fail. And no matter how many times you say fail fast, people don't really like doing it. So given that that is the theme, failure is the theme, what are your thoughts on failure in the agile world? And do you have any examples that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, definitely, Chris. I think it's a really interesting topic. And like the, the second part to, to what you were just saying about failing fast, like the second part of that is like about learning quickly, right? And it's, it's about embracing that, that iteration mindset. And a lot of the teams that I work with, I try to coach them away from perfection, especially in, in government where, like I said, it does have a big impact on people's lives. You don't want it release something and it blocks a payment for someone. You know, that's, that's quite, quite costly, right, in terms of failures. But it's that, for me, it's about that, that culture of being able to release frequently and often, getting real user feedback. And also it's like an empathetic like servant leader. Like we've got to take those masks off, right, and be vulnerable and show that it's okay. Because like you said, like failure is a bit of a, a Lord Voldemort sort of term, like, you know, <laughs> he should, who can't be named you know, failure. And, you know, and even people that, that change that, that sort of term that you said around fail fast and they call it about learn fast but then even that i try to be i like, encourage people to use the word because then you're, you're kind of like demeaning that power over it so i feel it's really important to kind of own that learn from your mistakes you know and there's there's cultures like uh, spacex that call, you know actively reward people for mistakes because it saves a lot of revenue you know it's showing that you're getting things to market you're engaging with users and i think that's something that can be rewarded in terms of my personal experience, like the actual question, like I think a lot of it goes quite hand in hand to the, my favourite aspects of facilitation and agile delivery. So, you know, it goes hand in hand with hackathons and hack days. So, you know, getting people just to think out loud, you know, like to try and incorporate that innovation culture from Google, like 20% time where you spend a day a week working on something unprioritised or, or maybe learn a new technology stack that you wouldn't come across before. You know, working in design sprints around rapid prototyping and you know some of my my lessons in failure have come from that you know like my, my most recent design sprint we were building uh, a prototype and we we tested with a load of job centers across the united kingdom and what we we failed to think of at the outset and luckily we found this out in two days rather than three months of delivery was that northern ireland has completely different laws around tenancy and, and second homes so if we released this thing, even as a you know release little one often, it would have alienated a massive part of the United Kingdom. Like that was like a big thing to applaud the team. Go, look, do you know what? Like we had we had good fun doing this design sprint, and it was great that we learned that in a couple of days, then wasted all this effort, time, and money in this that complex domain. So like that that's a little bit about me in terms of you know my thoughts on failure and stuff. And I know we were speaking before around some sporting stuff, so just hope we can come on to that as well. Yeah, we'll definitely come on to that. I think one of the, one of the things I love about what you, you've highlighted there is it's, it's the repositioning of failure as something you celebrate rather than something you don't talk about. You know, the, what, what's the what's the phrase? Um, if you if you don't talk about history, you're doomed to repeat it, right? And and this this is yeah, the, there are parallels with that and some of the hor- horrific crimes that have happened throughout history. But the same with failure. If you don't talk about failure, odds are someone will come across and fail with the same thing. And what always interested me is that, yeah, people always celebrate their successes. You know, you look on any social media, it's always, we've done this well, we've done that well, but no one ever talks about the things that went horribly wrong. This was a mistake. Learn from it, though. This is, this is what I learned from it. And I think that's the, the key thing for me. If we can rebrand failure as a learning opportunity, think of the benefits we gain as a consequence. The time to learning is increased, and therefore you spend less time wasted on things that aren't going to be adding value that aren't going to be delivering what we're looking to deliver. And we're going to spend less time and money investing in the wrong things as a consequence. Perhaps we need to be having conversations with uh, the HR people in the world uh, and just emphasize, maybe we could start rewarding people based on how many failures they highlight or, 
or you know how much learning they share with one another it's, it's something i actively encourage with the, the people that i work with let's just have a failure swap shop once in a while let's just share what went wrong and what we learned from it because yeah, then we're sharing that and you're less likely to have people making the same mistakes over and over. And again, this is where, for me, retrospection really, really helps. because It's that opportunity to reflect as a team on what particularly hasn't gone well, what we could do differently next time to make sure we're avoiding those failures. Now, we, we talked about a little bit about uh, sporting parallels. So we know there's some famous sporting failures out there. And I think you were mentioning there may be some things that we could learn from those those failures or some parallels we could draw with perhaps the, the work we do in the, the Agile world. So any, any notable examples you can think of, Stephen? Yeah, there's a few that come to mind. Just just on what you were saying, Chris, completely agree with that. Like we're in, in our government communities, we have things like Falcamp and Tech Confessions. And I know there's a few departments that have the biggest failure award just to nice. try and shift that culture change. So yeah. I, I really like that there's a bit of a, a mindset shift there. So completely on board with that. And, I, love, I love the confessional and, and like, concept. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good, isn't it? Like, I guess it's, it's, it's all about, it's, it's intrinsically linked to psychological safety, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, and for me, I quite like, like, especially when you get into these things, like most of people's failures always come to, oh, I, I enforced scrum, you know, I wasn't agnostic. And, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes just encouraging people to be a bit more real, like some of the examples I've given you, like, you know, real verifiable case studies. Uh, so, yeah, completely agree. Uh, in terms of the sporting side, so this is just my, my stance on delivery. Like, I'm not a massive book reader. I love going on training. I love watching things like documentaries. So like some of the stuff that, you know, like I try to, to take agile lessons and especially working with stakeholders that might not get it or are working with, with team members that are tra- transitioning, you know, trying to find something that, you know, like, well, here's the point and it's in a context that you're understanding that, that you're like, you know, and sport's one way of doing that, right? So like I love watching things like The Last Dance on Netflix with Michael Jordan. So that's a really good one to start with, right? You know, like what, an NBA absolute legend of the game and by his account he's he's missed something like nine thousand shots he's he's missed the winning game point 26 times he's lost 300 games in his lifetime and and i can't remember maybe the quote for quote but it's like it's because of those failures and that inspection and adapt and working with coaches and looking at weaknesses in his game they became like the best of all time right and there's just so many examples like that like Sir David Browsford at Sky like that that emphasis on uh, marginal gains it's easier to change one uh, sorry 100 things by one percent than one thing by a hundred percent and you know transitioning you know uh, Sky and Team GB cycling from appointment manufacturers wouldn't even give them equipment to to be hugely innovative mm-hmm. right and it's, it, like the list goes on I think my the last two that I really like is uh, Babe Ruth so again, I don't. I'm sure you've got a lot of American listeners. Chris is a major league baseball all American icon as star. He's got something like 750-ish home runs. But what people don't talk about, if you look at the actual data behind his statistics, is something like he struck out for like pretty much double the amount of that, almost 1,400 times. He had like a, a, a striking average of like 0.374. So out of a thousand throws, he'd only hit the ball 374 times. So like, like the point I'm trying to make is that some people respond well to these case studies rather than than other bits. And it's about that, you know, there's a lot of sports science and, and psychology and coaching in terms of how people inspect, adapt, become innovative and having that resilience to improve. So, so there's just a couple of little things to throw at you if you to build on. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I love the, the parallels between sport. Uh, Michael Jordan, as you say, 9,000 um, missed attempts and each of those helped him progress and become better at the sport and obviously everyone remembers the great stats they don't tend to focus on the negative ones but for him to get where he was he had to fail a lot and learn from it Uh, I think I was what was going to my mind is I think about football uh, American or English Premier League or world soccer whatever you want to call it for any, any listeners around the world a team will have a plan on the day. They will go and face their opponents. They will have a strategy. They will have a formation in mind, 4-4-2, four, 3-5-3, four, three, three, et cetera, et cetera. Probably even the wrong numbers there. Um, but they'll have a four, formation in mind and they will try it. And then partway through the game, they will adjust their strategy based on what's happening. If they're they're you know, having a lot of attacks face down one side, they'll pivot their approach and maybe strengthen one side. They might 
bring on a different player that might be able to influence the game in a slightly different way. At halftime, they'll have a little mini retrospective where they'll talk through how things are going and adjust their plan accordingly. And then after the game, between that game and the next week, they will review future uh, or footage from other teams and plan a new strategy. They'll reflect on how it went. No team that's just lost 8-2, Arsenal United from years ago, is going to go in with exactly the same approach again, expecting it to get better results that time round. I think you and I have talked about in the past how Einstein's definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over and expecting different results. So you can definitely draw attention or, or parallels between the sporting world and the world of work, ways of working. And especially to bring it home or to land it, uh, land a concept with a, a team that maybe hasn't quite gotten agile yet. Think about how a team has a, has, a, has a plan, goes after that plan, tries it, learns from it, adjusts accordingly, tweaks it, inspects and adapts, and ultimately comes out with something better. They're not the same every single time. And this is what we do with the, the software or delivery world. We will have a, a plan. We're working on these items. We're going to see how we get on with them. We're going to adjust our approach Based on what we learn, we're going to try and learn fast. And ultimately, we're trying to deliver a better product for our customers. So I definitely think there's a lot of, a lot of parallels we can draw between the working world and the sporting world. Now, Steve, you and I share an affinity for visual thinking and retrospectives in particular. And I believe very recently, myself, you and uh, Dave Westgarth, another retro enthusiast have been dubbed the three musketeers when it comes to retro which was from sean parker i think on linkedin love that by the way so question to you steve what is it that inspired you to begin sharing your talents and creativity with the agile community sure. i've just got a massive like they're, they're my two passions outside of my kids right is is drawing and agile facilitation right and they go hand in hand and and that's that's just a little snippet into my teams and the way that like, I work and engage with people. It's just a little insight into what I like and, and some of those immersive fandoms that I enjoy. And, and yeah, I just feel like there's, there's a lot of studies around like visual storytelling. Like, so there was a big study in, in Waterloo, the University of Waterloo in Canada, that, that memory retention is linked to drawing, right? And there's a lot of dementia patients that are trying that. And, and for me, it's like such a primitive uh method of, of sharing knowledge right and it's just something that i don't know that people just seem to, to really like and it gets shared a lot and it, you know like for me personally like everyone can draw and like, like before you even write you learn it to draw right so we can all do it and the reason i call it primitive is like you go back to like caves it's all drawn out there isn't it you go back to the like the ancient egypt in the pyramids Hieroglyphs. so it's just something that i i personally yeah it's just it's just it's just a really neat way to just inject a bit of my personality into the Agile community, into LinkedIn and into the teams that I work with, really. And then, again, coming back to that study, like, you know, like that old uh, saying around like memory like a goldfish or attention span like a goldfish. So there's a lot of studies now that humans have a worse uh, attention span than goldfish is like eight seconds to 12 seconds now, right? So like, so I find that using visuals uh, is pretty much what I do for everything. Like whether I'm storyboarding, whether I'm creating retrospective templates, they're all done via illustrations. It's just a nice icebreaker. Um, I use a technique called Petra Kuchas uh, for pres presenting, which is just 20 images, 20 seconds per slide. And it's just short and snappy. And there's a lot of research that suggests that suggests like 80% of participants remember that. So you know, for me, like to answer the, the question really simply, it's just a way to inject my personality into the community. And I, I just love talking to like-minded folks like yourself, like Dave, like Stu, but I can't remember the guy's name, Stu, Stu Axon's a very good facilitator and retro uh, template creator. So yeah, it's just putting stuff out there and, and seeing, seeing who likes it. Mm. And I, I think I, what, I, what I like what you shared there is it's something that you enjoy doing. And it's a way of sharing something you enjoy but you can see that in what you create, right? I, I am envious, yeah. so envious of your, your creative talent with drawing things because I, I'm, I'm great at thinking ideas and I, I heavily borrow from the likes of Google and otherwise to pull my templates together because I just don't have the, the confidence you have in, in drawing the, the works that, that I draw or that you draw. So I love that it's um, something that you enjoy doing and it's something that you create and share with the community. For me, it comes back to... I guess why, why I do it is because it helps the community and the stories that I get as a consequence, right? When, when someone says yeah. to me, oh, I ran this journey 
the retro themed workshop the other day where I had music playing as people coming in, don't stop believing. And there was all the, all the, all the TV screens had journey stuff on it. I was just like, that's just, that's just amazing. Why, why as humans do we uh, spend billions and billions of dollars a year on movies and video games and music and television? It's because we love escaping reality and, and they are often visual or auditory forms of consuming information. So why not bring that into the workplace and have a little bit of fun with it? I'm such a firm believer of fun in the workplace. This is my own way of trying to bring a bit of that fun to the workplace because I personally find that those that are enjoying themselves are often producing better outcomes in the meetings rather than just being there because, well, it's work. Work can't be fun. Yeah. Question for you then. Have you got any particular stories to share of how any of your, I guess, creative or visual formats, mediums, retros or otherwise have landed with your teams and the consequences? Yeah, sure. So like, I'm same to you, Chris. Like, that's why we get on so well anyway on on linkedin and while we've collaborated so many times and like so for me personally like it the the big thing was during covid right like you know and and like you said like trying to create those immersive experience how do we replicate those water cooler type conversations how can we build empathy and for me and like you've used this term a lot as well that's why we like we're quite similar in our our stances around celebrating those microcultures so like what what i'd like to do is like to Going back to like example or a verifiable case study in this, so I joined the team last December, and I like to introduce things like frivolous Friday or, or some sort of like Friday fun questions. It'd be like you know last book you read, you know, give me a t- TV series worth watching at the weekend. And what I do, I just try to like create like a snowball effect or a domino effect. I'm like, okay, well, there's a conversation going here. Maybe it's Game of Thrones, or I think in this instance it was Dragon Ball Z, right? And in my experience lately, I don't tend to work with really high-performing teams. It's normally like parachuting in to try and yeah. sort out maybe conflicts or, you know, what it's like, right? So, like, getting people to – I try to, like, generate a bit of empathy, find out what people like. And I'll go away maybe at the weekend or in the evening. And in this case, we were talking about anime and Dragon Ball Z, which I so happen to love, right? Yeah. And I just went away and drew loads of stuff for my daughter and presented it back to the team on the Monday or Tuesday, and they were just blown away by it. Like, this was a team that had no cameras on, you know, like, it was in a bit of a state of flux, hence why I was working with them. And it just really brought them out of the shell, and, like, I'm a big believer on retros, uh, you know, showing them data, like, that's something I don't always share on LinkedIn, like, giving them some flow metrics, and just getting them talking. I think that's a real important bit in a retro that's not always spoke about, getting people to find their voice. And we had something like a... You know, what Vegeta are you feeling today? And there's like a scale of him being super happy and married to Bulmer and versus him being beaten up and destroyed by a freezer. And, and then, you know, the same prompts that you get in any retro, right? You know, like around mental health, future perspective, like what's going good, bad, sad, you know, the same stuff, right? But just playing it and, and asking the same questions in a different way, right? Like what's your super saiyan power? Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's your free wishes? Like if you collect all the Dragon Balls and... You know, and I think that was a real eye opener for me. In in the you know there was the feedback to my tech lead was like, wow, I've got everyone's cameras on, you know, like we put the pandemic and not being able to see family and not being able to escape the home to one side. And you know, considering that was on like day two in this team, it just builds so much empathy and feel good yeah. factor, and you can piggyback on top of that. Yeah. So like that's just the one that springs to mind. I love it. And the, the, I guess the icebreaker, the, the making time for personal interaction to learn about one another, so important, particularly where many of us are distributed across the world. I work with teams from, from Mexico, South Africa, the UK, India, and otherwise. Seldom are we going to be face-to-face to benefit from that, that human connection you can get in, 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 a, in a real person situation, real live face-to-face situation. But that doesn't mean via creativity, we can't create a genuine moment with one another. So one of my favorite um, icebreakers that I love using is your Nicolas Cage scale with the, the bees on one scale and, oh, yeah. and the, just the happy Nicolas Cage on the other. I just thought that was brilliant. I've used that in, in town halls with hundreds of people. I've used it with, with retros. I've done all sorts. I've had ones where there's various Lego characters, you know, builders and things like that. And you can say, how are you feeling at the moment? Are you feeling like you're a creator or are you feeling like you're a gardener or whatever it may be? There's all sorts. Um I, I do build in icebreakers into my retro templates, like the Taco Tuesday one is what, what taco would you most like if you could have right now? And you get them to build their favorite taco from a load of objects or collectively together, let's build an image of Shrek or whatever it may be. 
you can absolutely create a bit of a genuine experience rather than it just being straight into work focused conversation. So love, love your yeah, story there. Just asking those questions. Yeah. Right. But the, the thing that I, I really like about your templates, Chris, like one of the criticisms I, I have on myself is that I produce a lot of nerdy, fandom, animated, you know, like comic book style stuff. But that just comes from my interests and like mm-hmm. stuff I like doing with my daughter. But the stuff I, I like that you really uh, put out really well, Chris, is like things like Celebrating Pride, like Black mm-hmm. History Month, Diwali. And like, you know, it doesn't have to be nerdy fandom, does it? It can be something topical like we've just had easter so like celebrating stuff like that as well like you know it just injects a bit of that water cooler chat brings people out of their shells and and have a bit of fun with it well it doesn't have to be boring well yeah this is one of my top tips for uh doing or creating good experiences or engaging experiences for diverse groups is absolutely leverage topics or themes that are relevant to your audience your microculture so if you have a team that um, is, is maybe comprised of a number of people from, from India, why not do a, a retro that's centered around one of their, their holidays or their festivals or events? So the Diwali retro came exactly from that. I was working with uh, a team that was largely comprised of Indians and I'd been out to India and I'd, I'd experienced the festival season or a little bit of it. And I thought, oh, why can't I create a retro that's tailored to, to them and, and matters mm-hmm. to them? rather than all the traditional westernized themes that they're probably familiar with. And the consequence of me doing that, that little bit of time I spent, meant that those people came out of their shell far more. They were more engaged than they ever had been. And that's not just my own story. That's that's people telling me they've used that retro as well. And they were really appreciative of the fact that it wasn't just a, a standard Western format. So we can definitely invest a little bit of time in making our experiences, our retros, our, our, our meetings otherwise more relevance and applicable to the audience so celebrate that microculture all right so question then what is your favorite retro format ever i am intrigued i've got a favorite of your ones but i'm interested what your own favorite is that's true that's a really really good question chris and it's it's tricky because it all depends on the team the context the environment like where am i facilitating and I think I think the the one that I'm most proud of, and it doesn't get, I don't think it really landed as well as I hoped it would do recently because everyone was on half term on holidays. But I, I think my best retrospective I produced and one that I I use quite a lot, especially in the last few weeks, is that Harry Potter one I put mm-hmm. out. So like you know, it, getting people to so it's got like bespoke dot voting counters. It's got like immersive into like what what pet you're going to choose and get people talking. It's got you know, different visual prompts and different retrospective prompts that aren't sort of like the, the same old type of ones, you know, like, what are you brave? You know, I had like different type of things and fandom elements that I brought in. I made sure that I had a, a good little return of time invested. Similar to the kick-ass or cage gauge, I kind of call yeah. it. You, you said like Ronald Weasley's Houselers to, you know, like uh, to love potions. I think that's my mm. favourite one. Like I think like when I'm in the office, you know, I, I like doing things like timeline retrospectives and getting people yeah. drawing with me. Like I've always got like the Cablo Newland pens with me, so just encouraging people to draw and 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 work together. But I don't I'll be brutally honest, I I don't really run the same retro week in, week out. Like they're all completely mm. bespoke. And I think one of the things especially like some of the, the, the topics you see on LinkedIn is, oh, my team would hate this or, you know, this week you were talking about how can we swarm like Pirates of the Caribbean? And now now you're talking about how can we be a soul? How can we work independently like Batman? You know, and like you just, you got remix and remaster things, right? You got yeah. iterated. You made that icebreaker of mine your own and made it and tinkered with it. And I think that's that's the key. And, you know, I'll, I'll create a bespoke template based on those waterball cooler chats to make it fun and and make it completely bespoke to them and I'll try and draw out the prompts based on what I'm observing or what people are saying to me. So I don't really have a, a go-to, but like I said, Harry Potter and Timeline Retro I can get drawing is probably my two sure. favourites. No, I like it. I mean, I emphasise so much. Any template I create, whether it's Harry Potter, Pirates of the Caribbean, Pride, Diwali, Queen the Rock Band, Journey, whatever it may be, they are just options at your disposal. They may land very well with the team, but another team, it may not work for them, and that's okay. They are options for you to try, um, and try them with the team you feel they'll fit with. So they're not a one-size-fits-all situation, just like anything with Agile. To me, customize it, 
based on your current context, situation, people, and culture. Now, your, um, your Harry Potter one, and I've created my own Harry Potter one in the past, and I like your take on it as well. I had things like the rememberal, so the object where, you know, if we could cast our own back, what's the great things that we can recall? You had kind of Dementor side of things, what's, what's causing an absence of hope in our team? You had the, the Horcruxes, which is like how we can split our epics or stories into more manageable chunks of work, a bit like he who shall not be named cast his soul into many pieces. So I like the, the splitting side of things. Tessamancy, so not a common word in the Harry Potter universe, but that was the, the reading of the tea leaves. So if we read our tea leaves in the future, what are our hopes for the next iteration? And as you said, you had your little re- uh, rate the retro part of the end, your own little return on time invested uh, feedback loop at the end, which I think is so important. I build it into all of my templates, which is all your, your mischief managed. So on a scale of one, mainly I loved it to five, almost I absolutely hated it, I was disgusted. And you had some great visual, visual images there. So great template. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's on the Miroverse. Take a search of Harry Potter Retro and I'm sure you'll find it. And within a few clicks of a button, you'll have access to it yourself. Right then. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. Okay. I was just going to say, like, I think you, it, it covers all like, the, the same topics, though, doesn't it? But you're just asking it differently. So there's always going to mm-hmm. be an element of how you're feeling. We're working in the global pandemic. Like, what does the future look like? What does uh, the past fortnight iteration sprint look like? You know, and I think like as long as you're asked, it's always going to be roughly the same type of format, but just asking it differently just gets people thinking. Like it's the same with people that run stand-ups and ask the same thing rather than, oh, well, you know, what unplanned work's come in the last 24 hours? Does anyone yeah. have anything in their schedule? Like, you know, you don't just ask the same things. You've got to try and get people out of their comfort zone a bit. Sorry, Chris. No, it's okay. I mean, stale questions beget stale answers. So if you keep asking the same things in the same way, odds are you're going to be talking about the same things. But a very slight tweak in language, again, with the right outcome, we're trying to learn what hasn't gone well, what could we improve, you know, what's on our mind, what, what could we do better. We're trying to uncover these things from a retrospective, but a slight change in language and, and making it a bit thematic gets people thinking slightly differently. And therefore, that can result in different answers. So that's why I do it. Uh, right, Stephen, you've given talks, I believe, on alternatives to planning, prioritization, estimating, and actionable metrics. So what are your key observations in this space then? What, what do people struggle with and what options they have available to them in regards to those topics, planning, prioritization, estimating, and metrics? Cool, that's a, that's a loaded question, Chris. It's, a, it's quite a controversial topic, isn't it? On, it is. On many forums, which, which is why I like talking about it, because I think whether you agree with me or, or you don't like it, it's like well how like, do you how solid and how comfortable and and how confident are you in those philosophies and principles that you have and mine personally I, I i hate using things like fibonacci sequence and poker planning and i really there's a couple of different techniques i like and this is just for me personally if, if you use that it's cool it's, it's what works for the team right it's, mm-hmm. it's any of these things I talk about including anything that I might throw under the bus, it's, it's as long as the team are having the conversation, that's the important thing. But the things I, I, I'm passionate about and I like to play around with and introduce, uh, there's a, a brilliant uh, stack of cards from a company called Lunar Logic. And excuse I'll use clean language for it, but, but they use uh, the logic behind their company to say, look, like there's not, it's the power in the conversation, right? There's no point arguing over a three, five and eight or five and eight. 813 whatever it's about what you get done at the end of the week so we're just going to count the throughput and there's three options when we're, we're doing our story refinement or backlog refinement so everything is either a one so like can we is it something that we can iterate is it something we can get within our release cadence does it provide value in in line with what our definition already is right if it's not a one it's too effing big just go away and slice it up that's your horcrux and if it's not too effing big and it's not a one, it's not something that's going to deliver value by the end of our iteration or whatever that, that period of time is, we've got no effing clue. So I quite like quite like that. It's not something you'd go into a team and start like frying around those types of terms. But, so I, but it's the philosophy around throughput and arrival mm-hmm. rate rather than vanity velocity metrics. So that's kind of why I like that one. And I'd love for you to get this person on. So Daniel Vacanti. And I know, I know Daniel, I, I do have a plan to get him on the show at some point. Oh, I'll, I'll definitely be tuning in for that. And of course, with every other guest we bring in. But like, you know, going back to the failure point, like I failed my PSK1 a couple of months ago. So the only assessment I've ever failed 
by the first and second. Luckily, I got it the second attempt right, but you know, I relayed all the stuff that I went wrong to my community, and that was my favorite training I've done over the last couple of years because it covers a lot around flow metrics. So, like, so it's what I try to incorporate into my planning and retros is, like I said, arrival rate, throughputs. It's around that that average. It doesn't matter about the sizing as long as we're slicing and delivering iteratively. You know, talking about things like work item age, which puts a bit of an emphasis on stand up. Oh, this thing is, I don't know, like ten days. Are we gonna like? What can we do to swarm and mob around that? Mm. You know, and it just puts that that secondary type of emphasis. And then using these flow metrics. Daniel Vacanti's got this brilliant tool as a plugin in Jira. You can do it manually, I'm sure. I'm sure there's some wizards with Excel. It's called Actual Agile, and it takes like your, your throughput, it takes your cycle time, it takes your work item age, and you can run simulations, right? So when I go into road mapping, and I get like government ministers coming to me going, oh, I need this thing done by, by why, and we as a team break it down. And we can use these simulations and that predictability of our delivery momentum to save you know, right, honourable, whatever, we can't deliver that, here's the data, you're not going to get it by the end of the week or, you know, mid-May, it's realistically looking like this, provided with that our capacity stays the same, right? So I think that's a really good way to, mm. to manage stakeholders, but also it's a good way for the team to combat optimism and completion bias. Mm. So like, it's a good way for us to, okay, well, we know what we can achieve, and, and it's, it's, like you said, it's holding that mirror up to the team. So I like to talk more around no estimates, thinking more around throughput and, and proper story slicing. But, you know, if T-shirt sizing and Fibonacci sequence and poker planning is your cup of tea, cool, go for it. But that's just a different way that you can do it, mm. right? And, and and just lastly, Chris, the only other sort of tools I use is things like WSJF, so weighted mm. shorts job first. So safe gets a lot of crap, right? Because it is like, a oh, here's every pattern under the book, smush. Yeah. You know, go come bring your entire organization with training up. But the hypothesis side of it and the way that you can order a backlog through WSJF is really good because it you, you're calculating the cost of delay by the time criticality. There's a big emphasis on risk reduction, which is big in government, especially like we said about the, the, the users' lives we've got it got in our back pocket. And it's also it's got the user's centricity to it. So you've got an ordered backlog, but it's putting but all of that tidied up is well what's the what's the most logical, smallest thing that delivers the most value? So I like mm. using things like that. And I think Interpol have a slightly different version called RICE, which yeah. is the REAP Impact Confidence divided by effort. Mm. And I played around with it. It's just not for me because like effort is in like people months. Yeah. You know, who, who knows, right? Like, I, you know, like, so for me, it doesn't quite work. But like, again, it's, it's learning to fail. It's learning to try new things. And you take that mask off and you show the team it's okay to be vulnerable and be innovative. And that's and that's how you build high-performing teams by setting the culture right. So there's just a couple of things I've thrown at you, Chris. be interested to see what your thoughts are on, on some of them. Yeah, so I guess let's take them one by one. And first of all, we've mentioned Actionable Agile and we're, we're displaying Miro. We're not advertising these products. They are just products that are at your disposal. Other virtual whiteboarding tools, I'm sure, are available as are other tools that help you with throughput and otherwise. But Actual Agile in particular, I remember when I first heard of the No Estimates movement, I think I heard of it from Vasco Duarte. And I remember looking at it and thinking, that's bloody nonsense. Why wouldn't you want to estimate? And then I dug into it a bit deeper and I, I, th I, I thought about some of the numbers, right? So I thought, hang on. So if we think an average Agile team comprised of, you know, seven plus or minus two, so nine people or, or five people, and then you maybe have 10 of those teams or more, depending on the size of your organization. And each of those teams maybe spends an hour minimum a week estimating. The estimating part doesn't add value at all. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't add value. It doesn't create the products. It's just time often trying to make people feel warm and fuzzy inside that things are in control. Uh, and there's a huge yeah. disparate, or there's a huge difference between what a team estimates something to be in terms of story points or or otherwise versus when it's actually going to be ready because that's what stakeholders tend to be caring about when's it going to be ready so i can plan accordingly or i can communicate with my stakeholders now story points don't tell you that answer you can you can get crude estimates you can say oh this team delivers 25 points of sprint so therefore if we're going to load these 10 items in um we know it's going to be roughly available on this 
round about this date, assuming it remains the, the, the right priority. But again, that there's inaccuracies in that also. Now, I have used Action Manager before, and I am quite a fan of it. I love the Monte Carlo forecasting side of it, because what it does yeah. is it helps provide or helps a team provide an answer to that question. When will something be ready? But it's based on their actual historical data. So you say, right, based on their historical data and their throughput, we know they achieve X number of items, not, not story points, X number of items in a time frame. And assuming we give them 10 new items based on probabilistic forecasting, there's a 90% chance it's going to be done on that date. And if someone asks for it sooner, then you can be saying, okay, well, if you want it sooner, this is what needs to change. Either we reduce the scope or maybe we add more people. Again, that doesn't always solve the problem either. But it gives, it gives the teams the ability to negotiate that 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 problem. So if they if a deadline is being chucked at them, they can say with some confidence, well, unless a variable is going to change here, that's not going to happen. There's not much we can do about that. So I, I do like actionable agile. Uh, WSJF again. I don't think it's for everyone, but it's one option at team's disposal. As you say, safe does get a lot of a lot of rubbish, usually for how it's implemented, usually for how it can be a bit scary because it's a bit of a monolith and it's all encompassing and it's kind of swallowed every good approach from all the other frameworks out there, including design thinking and all manner of things nowadays. But weighted shortest job first can be a great way of removing that subjectivity from the equation where you've got all these conflicting stakeholders asking for someone saying, this thing's a priority, this thing's a priority, this thing's a priority. But then you score everything with WSJF and say, well, actually, that's got low time criticality. That's got high opportunity enablement or risk reduction. And as a consequence, the cost of delay of this is actually different to that one. This is the most important thing we should be focusing on right now. And that can help navigate those challenges where everything's a priority. I'm shouting loudest so I get my thing first. It adds objectivity into the equation. And that can help with that frustrating situation where lots of stakeholders are demanding their thing first. So I do like WSJF as a, an option as well. Interesting insights yeah i've got one more fear that i just remembered uh, so this was a couple of years back like uh, it, it still strikes me mental there's so many agile coaches scrum masters delivery leads they haven't actually wrote on a physical poster so back in those days when you're around a, a whiteboard with your team so i've run a an exercise and this team used uh, story points and t-shirt sizes and i really like the concept of buy a feature monopoly so, money yeah yeah exactly I went and bought a uh, Game of Thrones Monopoly board. So that, that was the big thing, right? You know, like, at the time. Scored up all of these, uh, like, epics and hypotheses that we had for our sort of, like, quarterly mission, which was, like, the government's sort of three-month roadmap that we were taking in, right? And uh, the reason why I really liked this was I kind of alluded to optimism bias. I'll get all this stuff done. Like, you've got a minister saying it needs to be done, right? They're just committed to it in Parliament. Go get it done, right? So anyway, I scored it all up. And I literally counted up the monopoly money to each stakeholder group. So I said, like, operations, like, some of the teams involved, policy, legal. And went, right, you got, I don't know, I said £200 to spare. That's your story points. or that's your, whatever the amount added up to your throughput. You can't, you can't go into overdraft. You know, you can't collect go and collect £200. You know, there's no loan sharks in here. You've got £200. How are you going to pick that? Right. So yeah. that was just another good way of getting people to agree and make sure that they, they commit and they're accountable and they don't take in too much because we want to get stuff done, right? So yeah. that was my final yeah, thought on that. Great, great way to limit work in progress a little bit by empowering the stakeholders. Hey, you are going to be able to decide what we most what we most need based on your allocation of this amount of money, 200, 1,000, whatever, whatever you may say. And if something's really important to you, sure, you can put 1,000 into it, but it means you don't get anything else. And then you get a bit of a exactly. consensus. What is the most bought one? What has the most money invested in? And he goes, okay, that's the most important thing. That's what we're going to work on next. Great way of um, getting a bit of a consensus or a priority view from a, a range of people. I, I definitely need you to know, create a template around that. And it's a bit of fun. Yeah, I definitely need to create a bit of a, a mirror template around that. Okay. So um, your role is head of agile delivery management. Now, I know delivery manager has become a bit of a, a growing, growingly recognized term in the Agile world. What do you say, or from your perspective, what's the difference between an Agile coach and an Agile delivery manager? Sure, so uh, there's probably another one to, to throw in the mix there with Scrum Master. I was well, going to include it, but I thought I'd limit it just to the two. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. So it covers. It's the same answer for all of them, right? So it's. I believe it's a term made popular by UK government, and it's kind of caught fire amongst other things. So we've got like a digital data and technology community. And the reason why we call it a delivery manager rather than an agile coach or a scrum master is that, you know, those are kind of like roles. They're not necessarily job titles. So, like, as a delivery manager, like, you're not just going to be working as a scrum master, right? Like, you could be wearing a coaching hat one day. You might even be working in a policy or operational stance. You might be working on projects. So, like, for us, it does more align to agile and lean as a whole but, you know, like we're a bit agnostic in terms of our delivery. Like, you know, like you wouldn't have a scrum master. Like, you know, if you take the universal credit program out of the 12 teams that I kind of oversee in London, it's predominantly Kanban, XP, Lean, Dynamic Systems Development Model. There's lots of different stuff, but Scrum is probably the one thing that we don't do because the teams just have a, a natural maturity. There's elements of Scrum, but it's almost like that Deloitte landscape, like we pick and choose what's most relevant we talk more about patterns and principles rather than methodologies and framework and as part of a delivery manager you do you can be a scrum master in a team that does scrum you know you can be an agile coach where you know we encourage people to to kind of do that x-wing model like you might be teaching you might be coaching you might be mentoring you know like you might be providing technical expertise or delivery assurance on those things so it's kind of like an all-encompassing term in that we do do agile coaching but it's just not part of our, our government framework because mm. you know like you, you'd be an agile coach but you could also be working with teams you could also be a scrum master you could also be a teacher and a facilitator so it's just a term that's kind of caught wind in the industry and i think it's been made famous by emily weber give her all credit who does a lot of stuff in the community of practice space so mm. it's not something that people will be unfamiliar with but it's just yeah it's like a new uh, buzzword really isn't it for mm. particular accountability now yeah I, I do hear a lot and i think my my reservation around it is it maybe feels a bit like a, a blend between a scrum master or agile coach and a project manager and i, I think my, my biggest fear around it is just the the delivery manager part of it where it seems like it may be creating a, an expectation or a bottleneck on that person to be responsible for managing delivery. When actually, from my perspective, what we're looking to do is create that self-managing delivery capability into the teams rather than it being one person's responsibility. So that would be my, my I guess, my biggest critique around that as a title. Yeah, no, we've, uh, even as a cross-government community, there's there's probably about two, 3,000 of us. It's, it's really big and like we've had had sessions where we said like same as you chris like we don't like the term product manager for, for rather than product owner and we don't like it doesn't necessarily mean agile coach or scrum master right but it's that manager point mm. like we're not responsible like we you know we're all accountable and committed to this thing right and it can get a bit greatest right you know like oldest oh, person's you know more seniority than yeah. this other person but but no i completely agree i think some of the things that I can't remember the best suggestions. Like people have like muted things like delivery coach and other good things. But yeah, I'd like to see that those manager words kind of come out a little bit. It's a little bit old school, but yeah, I mean, you yeah, can equally say little... uh, you can say a scrum master maybe needs to evolve as a title because scrum master used to be the the accepted term, but actually nowadays a, a scrum master is probably leveraging a range of agile approaches, like you're saying from a delivery manager mm -hmm. perspective. They might be using Scrum, Kanban, Safe less they could be leveraging a range of techniques but applying it at a team level primarily um and maybe the the word master as well may not resonate with some people because it's got ties to master slave and things like that rather than just being someone who yeah. excels in, a, in a, a title or excels at a certain framework or approach anyway conscious of of time uh i always ask anyone on my show steve to add a new theme or template or retro to my backlog. And given that you and I have worked together, I think that you and I should use our collective creativity to create a new engaging experience for people in a different aspect of agile working, perhaps outside of retro. So what themes template do you think you and I could create that we could add to the backlog and share with the agile community? That's another great question. So, like, so I think there's a couple of things that spring to mind. Like, I, mean, I think you were talking, it might be with Jeff Watts around definition of awesome. Yes. I love that. And, yeah. you know, 
And you know, I, to be honest with you, I get a little bit bored with retro templates myself, right? There's so many different templates we can fall on. But I definitely think we should do that definition awesome. Like we're working currently on that that comic book agile type strip that I need to kind of mm-hmm. put my head down and do. So I definitely want to do that. But I think like I think there'd be real benefits to the community around maybe like a design sprint template. Like obviously A Chain's smart and uh, you know Google Ventures have some good ones. But I think like it'd be good to get some some different variety out there. You know maybe one around road mapping. Mm-hmm. different estimation techniques pi planning so there's a, there's a few different options and it'd be interesting when you put this episode out and get people to vote for them and we're yeah let's, let's one there, there are some options there are some options so we've got the definition of awesome by the way comes from simon powers adventures with agile uh he shared that concept with me it's kind of the evolution of definition of done so what it means is a team may have a definition of done but that's something they can adhere to right now but it doesn't mean that they don't aspire for awesome right so their definition done right now might, might be what they're capable of doing and that could be right we want to get 60 percent code coverage on all of our stories but they know that 100 percent isn't attainable right now it's going to take a lot of work so their future state might be well that's where we want to be our definition of awesome is every time we complete something it's got 100 percent code coverage so maybe we could create a template around definition done plus definition of awesome we could create one around um that kind of uh monopoly money buy a feature concept there are lots of things and yeah let's let's see what the community comes up with right anything you'd like to share with our listeners before we finish the episode steve no i'd just like to say again chris thank you for having me on it's, it's, it's brilliant that you shine a, a light on on lots of different thought leaders and, and other people in the community that might not get their, their their content seen so thank you so much for what you do and and yeah just feel free to have me on linkedin and always happy to have virtual coffee chats and hopefully see everyone on the agile conference in the the not too distant future when normality resumes i guess in the world so again just thank you chris all right well wonderful thank you for sharing your insight and wisdom today steve we are always looking for new guests to appear on the show so do reach out if you'd like to be involved for one of the largest collections of templates on all things agility on the web check out the website www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk my own retro templates alongside some of Steve's are on there as well. And do check out Steve's LinkedIn and Mirrorverse templates. Lots of great creative things there. If you want to stay up to date with the latest in virtual agility, don't forget to subscribe to my mailing list. And otherwise, folks, don't stop believing. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.